Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, episode 318, Axiom Mission 3. I'm Gary Jordan. I'll be your host today. On this podcast, we bring in the experts, scientists, engineers, astronauts, all to let you know what's going on in the world of human spaceflight and more. The International Space Station is open for business. In 2019, NASA initiated a directive to welcome businesses to explore commercial opportunities on the International Space Station. Why? Well, the International Space Station is not meant to be in low Earth orbit forever. So NASA's current plan is to maintain human presence in low Earth orbit by using commercial companies to provide the rides, the destinations, the cargo shipments, and more. So to realize this future, the ISS being the test bed that it is, is being used to evolve how commercial human spaceflight missions work through an effort called Private Astronaut Missions. So already, we've had a few private astronaut missions to the station, namely from Axiom Space. The missions were Axiom Mission 1 and Axiom Mission 2. We learned quite a bit just on two missions, on how government and private companies can work together to accomplish their goals. And the more we do it, the more we learn. Now the next private astronaut mission is Axiom Mission 3. This planned 14-day stay will see astronauts from all different countries, including the first Turkish astronaut, and is packed with research, outreach activities, and commercial activities. On the flight is pilot Walter Villaday, representing Italy and the Italian Air Force, mission specialist Alper Gezerauci of Turkey, and Marcus Wandt, ESA or European Space Agency astronaut from Sweden. Commanding the mission is our guest for this podcast, Michael Lopez Alegria, representing the U.S. and Spain. Mike is a former NASA astronaut and veteran of five space flights, including one private astronaut flight. The naval aviator joined NASA as an astronaut in 1992 and flew on space shuttle for three short-duration missions that span from 1995 to 2002 on three different orbiters, Columbia, Discovery, and Endeavour. He flew a long-duration mission, Expedition 14, launching on a Soyuz from Baikonur, Kazakhstan, and spending seven months in space. He remains a record holder for number of spacewalks by a NASA astronaut at 10 in his career. After retiring from NASA, he served in a variety of roles and in both public and private capacities advocating for commercial spaceflight and now serves as Chief Astronaut of Axiom Space. In 2022, he commanded Axiom Mission 1, the first private astronaut mission to the International Space Station. On this episode, we'll learn a little more about Mike L.A., his passion for commercial spaceflight, and a bit more on the upcoming private astronaut mission to the International Space Station, Axiom Mission 3. Let's get started. Mike Lopez, Alegria, thank you so much for coming on Houston. We have a podcast today. Good to be here. <laughs> it's about time we've had you on. Honestly, it's my fault. Uh, just a poor organization to get you on before AX1 and you're super busy, but very glad we can make the time now because um, you're about to launch to the International Space Station as a private astronaut mission commander for the second time. Thinking about that, just sort of sitting in that moment of where your career started, your time as a NASA astronaut, and now as a private astronaut mission commander for the second time. How does that sort of sit with you? Sits great. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I think any astronaut that's been to space wants to go back in general. Um, yeah. I had written off that possibility when I left NASA just because I changed careers and I, I wasn't thinking at all about any kind of a return. I was pretty happy with uh, my 20 years here. And, um, you know, this opportunity just presented itself organically. And, of course, uh, who could say no to that? <laughs> It's a uh, it's a wonderful thing, and I think we're gonna we're gonna be getting into it throughout this conversation. But for our listeners, um, you know, for for those who may not know, you are a very experienced NASA astronaut, and and your time and experience on preparing for this moment as commander of this of this, of AX three goes even farther back than that. I know you had an um, interest in flying. You were a naval aviator. And I wonder if there was something maybe early in your life, in your career, some mentor that sparked that decision to pursue an aviation route. Well, I'd like to say my mentors were the early NASA astronauts. So, you know, mm -hmm. I grew up in the era of Apollo and was very 
touched by the first lunar landing. I, I remember how it unfolded vividly. And at that point, decided I wanted to be an astronaut. Of course, I was 11 years old at the time, so I didn't really stick with that dream um, through high school. Mm. Things changed, uh, but ended up going to study at the Naval Academy, became a Navy pilot, having studied engineering, and I wanted to figure out a way to combine engineering and aviation. That's what test pilots do. So I started looking into becoming a test pilot, read an article in a magazine about the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School that had a sidebar that mentioned all of the astronauts who had gone to that institution, and they were all my childhood heroes, my mm -hmm. mentors. So that I was age 25 at the time, and that's how the 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 dream was reborn, I guess. Yeah. It seems like it never went away, though, in a sense, because maybe maybe you were grounded in a little bit more realism, like, ooh, astronaut just seems way too far out, but these things still interest me. But you were saying that it was your heroes. It was it was other astronauts that had gone through similar experiences. So maybe it was somewhere in the background, just, uh, you know, like, maybe astronaut is a possibility. Was it was it still there, or has it had it left you at that time? I mean, who knows uh, what's you know beneath the surface there as you're growing up. But I, mm -hmm. I didn't think of it consciously. In fact, when I went to the academy, I thought I was going to be a submariner. Oh, really? And then I spent three days on a submarine, which changed my mind. <laughs> you're like, nope. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> around that time, you know, the academy is on the East Coast. I lived on the West Coast. And so every chance I got when we were on break, I would catch what we called the military hop. So basically airplanes that were doing their missions, flying back and forth, generally cargo airplanes. Mm -hmm. If there were what they call space available, empty seats, you could sit on them for free. Hmm. And so I got to um, hang around a lot of aviators and it was like, these are my people. Aha. Uh -huh. That can seriously influence you one way or the other is, is just the people that surround you. It's the same reason I think people go into submarines, right? It's, it's submarines are pretty tough. But if you're surrounded by people that you enjoy being around, then it's not so bad. Yeah, it's it's definitely a different mentality. And yeah. I have friends who are submariners, so <laughs> <laughs> cast no aspersions in their direction, sure. but uh, it wasn't for me. Okay. Well, you found your calling, and uh, that calling led you to uh, be welcomed by NASA as a NASA astronaut. Um, that feeling must have been spectacular. You said the dream kind of came back, and you and you ended up pursuing it. So I wonder, wonder, wonder why? What came? What came around that? Hey, maybe I should apply to become a NASA astronaut. Well, I fell in love with this idea of, of going to test pilot school, mm -hmm. and um, at the time there was a subset of that program where they sent you to graduate school first and I was lucky enough to be chosen for that so I went to Monterey studied aeronautical engineering and then to test pilot school and you know at that point it was all head full I mean that was I, I knew what my dream was and um, I applied um, pretty early in my test pilot career probably a little bit too early and and did not make it um, uh, came down to an interview but um, I it wasn't my time. Mm -hmm. And then the next cycle, which was 1992 class, uh, I was selected. And you're right. I mean, there, there are legends about getting that phone call <laughs> from the chair of the um, selection board. But it is a life-changing day for sure. Yeah. So um, you, know, you went through your training and you got, um, you got chances to go uh, into low Earth orbit. You got a couple of shuttle flights. You got to fly on three different shuttles. Uh, you got to go to the International Space Station. Quite a diverse experience. Your first one was an interesting one. Um, you were doing uh, microgravity experiments, but on the shuttle, not necessarily on the International Space Station. What was that one like? This is your first flight, STS-73. Right. STS-73 in 1995 mm -hmm. was a space lab mission. So we had a European-built module in the back of the shuttle's cargo bay. And we got to and from the module through a tunnel that mm -hmm. was connected to the mid-deck. <clears throat> we were a crew of seven. We had two payload specialists, you know, one each in, in uh, zeolite crystals, uh, a guy named El Sacco, and then another fluid physicist from Marshall named Fred Leslie, and then five NASA astronauts, four of us, sorry, three of the five, so a total of five of the seven were rookies, which was interesting. Mm-hmm. And we were divided into two shifts uh, so that we could work around the clock in this laboratory. And it was all about science. Uh, U.S. Microgravity Laboratory 2 was a payload. 
Um, so three of us on the mission were pilots. I was a blue shift commander. The other two guys were on the red shift. Um, Ken Bowersox was a commander, and he is now the associate administrator. Yeah. Um, interesting story about Ken that we may get to a little bit later. Um, but, you know, they let some of us pilots do what we called pilot science, but the real stuff was going on mostly in the uh, space lab module with the experts. The other two mission specialists are both scientists, so it was a pretty scientifically oriented mission. This is your first one, and you had a, and you had a variety of experiences up there. Of course, uh, your third mission was Expedition 14. You got to have a long-duration mission, and I wonder about the differences there. But this first one... We talked to astronauts who described the short duration versus long duration as sprint versus marathon. And you've experienced both. I wonder how it, how it um, compares to private astronaut missions as well, because the private astronaut mission AX-1 um, was uh, just a couple of weeks. Uh, Space Labs, short duration. Uh, I wonder if you have that same mentality, sprint versus marathon. That is definitely a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would definitely put, it's very much based on duration. So whether it's a PAM or a regular NASA, NASA mission, I think short duration missions are very much sprints. Hmm. What's different is a short duration mission on the ISS, I would say is not as choreographed as a shuttle mission was. Meaning we reviewed what we called the flight plan or the timeline in a shuttle mission. Like It was laid out in five-minute increments for the entire mission. So you knew what you were doing on flight day 11 at 325 in the afternoon. Mm. Um, Expedition missions uh, and even short missions on the ISS, you might know what your payload complement is, but you really don't necessarily know the sequence. So it's a little bit different, but um, it's a sprint in that you generally don't get any days off or maybe half a day. You, You know, you're working. Weekends aren't weekends. They're work days. Right. And uh, it's over before you know it. <laughs> that is true. It, it goes by really fast. I wonder if the uh, if the training um, there's some parallels there. There, perhaps with with private astronaut missions and these short duration sprints, are the short durations? I mean, are you trained for just this specific period of time, and it kind of goes down to those five minute increments? Um, or, or is it more like what we see now with the private astronaut mission, which is the general training, the especially on the International Space Station that we see here in Houston? Just uh, here's how here's how things work. I would say, certainly in the shuttle, we did a lot of simulations of ascent and entry and rendezvous and undocking. Um, for a station mission, uh, obviously you do that stuff in your launch vehicle, whether it's a Soyuz or a, or a Crew Dragon. Yeah. But the actual sort of meat of the mission, the experiments, the day-to-day stuff, you rarely would take a chunk of the timeline and actually practice that. You would do activities that represent those kinds of things. We call them routine ops or sometimes you'll hear day-in-the-life sims. Mm-hmm. But that is just a representative timeline. If you're lucky, you'll have some payloads that will be on your mission. Mm -hmm. But generally, that's not the case because especially on a private astronaut mission, we're really racing to get all of the payloads integrated, which for us kind of means that the um, procedures identified. So you don't have a lot of the operations products that you would normally have, that you will have on orbit. Um, much before the launch itself. So you don't have the luxury of practicing an experiment with the real procedure, uh, let alone the real hardware, in a simulation. Okay. Um, a little bit of differences there, I see. Okay, so um, I'm gonna, going to your next mission, STS-92, uh, um, and N113, actually, I think these were ISS assembly missions. You still, to this day, are one of the, uh, among the top NASA astronauts for number of spacewalks. And a lot of them were, were on these couple of flights. They were space station assembly um, missions. And so you got to put on pieces of the International Space Station and several times right now your record stands at 10. Uh, you got to go outside and, and take part in building this orbiting laboratory that stands today. I wonder if when you reflect on that experience and not just the spacewalking experience, but contributing to the construction of this national lab, which we're still using for things that we may not have even thought about whenever we were constructing um, during the ISS assembly phase. I wonder how now, 2023, uh, you reflect on that time spacewalking. 
I don't know if you've built or remodeled a house, but if you're involved in the very beginning, let's say you're remodeling a house and you're involved in the demo and, and sort of really putting the frame back together and that kind of thing, and then you live in the house for many years or you go back to it afterward, and it's almost hard to imagine what it was like at the very, very beginning. So STS-92, also called ISS Mission 3A, was the third American assembly flight. Mm-hmm. So when we went there, there was nobody living on board. There were actually three modules up there. We brought two pieces, the, the Z1 truss and the pressurized mating adapter number three. And we did four EVAs back-to-back, two teams of two. And when we left the ISS, it was the last time anybody um, closed a hatch on an uninhabited uh, International Space Station. So either, I think maybe while we were still in flight or not long after, Bill Shepard and the crew of Expedition 1 launched. Of course, it's been inhabited ever since. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, yeah, it's a privilege. And the EVA piece of it, I mean, as magnificent as space flight is, you can't even imagine what a spacewalk is like it's it really is uh the the special of the special yeah just the perspective of looking down and just having that that view uh, we we talk about it constantly and i try to try to imagine it but it's just it's just really tough so you've seen it's you've seen the history of 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 iss you've seen it's in its infancy uninhabited closing the doors without people in it now with continuous habitation like you said since 2000 um you've seen yeah this it's you kind of, in a sense, refer to the International Space Station as the house that you were remodeling or building, and you just look back and be like, wow, I can't believe how much progress. Is that kind of how it was the last time you visited yeah. for AX-1? And it has changed. So the second to last time I was there was 15 years ago or 15 years before the last one. Yeah. Um, and a lot had changed. It probably more than double in size, more than double the crew size. Mm-hmm. Um a lot of stuff like there is wires and laptops and cables <laughs> and hoses and bungees it's it's really quite um chaotic <laughs> up there <laughs> and that's very different um you know expedition 14 was was definitely different but even before that on uh, the third mission which was STS 113 we brought up expedition 6 and brought home Expedition 5. And even back then, of course, you know, as small as the station was, it was still, hadn't hadn't had time to um, accumulate all the stuff that's up there now. Yeah, lots of stuff. Um, there's a lot going on, I suppose. And so lots of, lots of, that comes with lots of stuff. Um, and certainly one of the things that I think we learned from as we're thinking about low Earth orbit operations, um, how to make sure that we are continuing that progress along the way. Um, your Expedition 14 experience was your long duration one. We talked about sprint versus marathon, but that expedition is what you see. Some of the some of the uh, folks you got to spend time with on the station for AX1 were in the middle of of this, and so I think you had an understanding of what that um, what that was like from a marathon perspective, from the perspective of spending so much time. Um, I wonder maybe how that has evolved over time. You're th- thinking about your Expedition 14 experience to maybe what you're seeing with some of the Expedition crew members uh, today on AX-1. Yeah, I'll go back to the uh, the house analogy. So this okay. is like going back to the house you grew up in and your parents remodeled it a little bit since you left, but it still seems very familiar. So that's what mm-hmm. it was like to float into the ISS, you know, in, in April of 2022 after having been gone for 15 years. Yeah. Uh, it felt familiar at once, but there were definitely some new twists, like all of the stuff forward of the lab was not there when mm-hmm. I was there before. And I could definitely relate to the experience of the expedition crew, having had a shuttle crew come during Expedition 14 and spend you know a week or so docked, and they did oh, all sure. the work. So, you know, you are having guests in your house, and... um what do they say about guests? It's like fish. You know, it's after about three days, it's time to get rid of them. <laughs> uh, we tried very hard not to be that way with the uh, Crew 3 crew, who was uh, led by Tom Marshburn. Right. Um, 
but it's inevitable. I mean, we're in their space, and they're used to having X uh, cubic meters per person, and now X just got divided by you know a bigger number. So sure. it was very different. But they were super gracious and very helpful. And you know, the AX1 crew came from a very diverse non-astronaut kind of background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know, as as we get more into, I, I guess we'll talk about AX2 and AX3 and mm-hmm. how the crew complement has changed a little bit more toward the government astronauts who have a little bit more preparation um, in organic to their lives. But because of that, uh, we did rely quite a bit on that crew to help us get through the timeline. We also were very ambitious in what we were trying to accomplish, probably too much so. I, I think we learned that lesson. So um, as these things are meant to be, you learn from them, and the next one's better than the first, and the third one will be better than the second, and it'll keep going in that direction until we get to that you know, perfect mission. Yeah, it's interesting hearing your perspective and just the, the thought and the understanding of the, your ex- experience as an expedition crew member uh, translates to something so relatable, just being a good guest, just being someone that, you know, like understanding what it's like to have someone in your home as an expedition crew member, what it's like for a short duration crew member, a very interesting perspective. Uh, Mike, my, le- my next set of questions were going to lead us out of your NASA experience, but I remember something about you telling you talking about a Ken Bowersock story. I want to make sure we get, we get to that. What's funny is you, as I feel like we're going to transition from NASA into the next phase of my life, Ken Bowersox had a lot to do with that. So he was working for SpaceX at the time. Mm. And uh, he and another former colleague who was also at SpaceX, a guy named Garrett Reisman, uh, I was out there doing something with NASA and we went to lunch and um, they really were pushing hard for me to go work for this outfit called the Commercial Space Flight Federation. Mm-hmm. And um, it's ironic now that, you know, Ken is in the position he's in and, you know, I've left CSF, um, but we're still sort of, you know, dancing around the same pole a little bit and um, respect Ken a lot. And um, so I followed his advice and it was really a very, very challenging time um, going to Washington uh, as part of an advocacy group, knowing nothing about how Washington worked, knowing knowing nobody there, uh, having had no experience walking the halls of Congress. I mean, it was it was a lot. I would say it's very different from learning how to be an astronaut because mm. uh, astronauts are trained very well. Um, they train us to do everything you can imagine, a lot of things you can't imagine. Whereas there's absolutely no playbook for what I was doing here, and that was that made it hard. Uh, but it was very rewarding, and I got that inspiration during Expedition 14 uh, as we were preparing to launch with my cosmonaut crewmate, uh, Misha Turin. The third person was going to be a spaceflight participant, and um, it was sort of the fourth, I want to say the fourth one of those missions that were brokered by Space Adventures. <clears throat> I wasn't too thrilled with the idea, to be honest, Um I felt like ISS is still under construction. You know, these people don't even know how to wear a hard hat. You know, the same kind of um, we versus they, which I um, unfortunately can understand that mentality. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple things changed. One of them was that the third person um, had a medical problem, was not able to fly, so their backup flew in their stead. Backup was a woman named Anusha Ansari. She's an Iranian-born um, American businesswoman. And when we got up to, I mean, first of all, she was great in training, and she was uh, very professional when we were on board in her tasks. But what really got my attention was she was blogging from space. Blogging in 2006 was a brand new thing. Mm. And... Literally a million people on Earth were following what was going on in low Earth orbit, and this is a million people who would not have otherwise cared at all about space, human space flight. And that really kind of turned a, um, flipped a, a bit in my head about this experience of human space flight. You know, at that time, probably 400, maybe 450 people had ever been to low Earth orbit. And yet she was reaching a million people at a time. And, and and while we go back to schools and things like that as professional NASA astronauts, 
Um, I, I think this idea of a platform like a blog it wasn't. We weren't reaching reaching a million people. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So this idea of democratizing the experience to let other people, then you know the, the those with the right stuff, let's say, um, really resonated with me. And and so when I left, started thinking about leaving NASA. That's where this whole conversation started with the CSF, and that's you know, and, and Ken and Garrett really um helped me take that leap you so to to expand on that csf right this is your your role really was taking this experience uh from expedition 14 understanding this mentality of democratizing space and connecting with people connecting with organizations connecting with influencers legislators to really um keep give this narrative some legs is that am, am I characterizing your responsibility correctly, or was was there more to your role than maybe I'm missing? Uh, you got part of it right. I, I think so. We're an advocacy group representing commercial space companies, and back in the day, it was some of the same names as today: Virgin Galactic, Blue Origin, SpaceX, uh, a couple that aren't around anymore. But the idea is that um, this idea of commercializing space, and we have to be careful because space has been commercial for a long time. I mean, NASA uses contractors to build systems that that it owned, like Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, Space Shuttle, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But with the beginning of commercial crew and then commercial, sorry, commercial cargo and then commercial crew, Rather than NASA hiring these companies as basically labor, uh, where, where NASA made all the decisions, kept all the IP, and, and had all the um, responsibilities, they said, look, we're going to give you some very high-level requirements. You guys meet these requirements, and we'll buy this service from you. You keep the IP. If you want to use it for something else, you're welcome to. Um, and, and, oh, by the way, we'll throw in some development money uh, at you. And that really was what we were fighting for. Um, at that time, commercial crew was was very much teetering on extinction. Oh. And so we fought hard to get NASA's budget um, increased for the commercial crew program, in addition to having to fund SLS and Orion, which were sort of the gorillas in the room at the time. Mm. So... Um, is that right? Gorillas in the room, or do I want to say elephants in the room? Anyway, the eight hundred pound gorilla. Room. I think I was mixing two metaphors. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, it worked. You know, we we got uh, increases in the budget, and around that time, SpaceX had its first c- successful commercial cargo launch, and you know, CCC TCAP came, um, CCI capped, and right. CCT cap, and all those things were happening at the time. So. It was a pivotal time to be involved. And I think having, you know, what they say, uh, they call on the hill a blue suitor, or somebody with NASA heritage or pedigree, was helpful because I think a lot of people in that commercial space world at the beginning were thought of as, you know, fringe, kind of tinfoil hat weirdos. And, and, and I was trying to bring some um, legitimacy to the organization and right. grow the organization and, and I'm happy to say now they're an absolutely uh, sought after and valid voice in some of these conversations, you know, in uh, with congressional offices and also with executive branch of, of the government. Thanks in part to the groundwork that's been laid over time of just marrying the the this private idea, this what may have seemed a little lucrative at the time to something that is reasonable and in practice and which we'll talk about here coming up soon. Um, you know, you, you have this advocacy for commercial space flight, and I wonder from there how it led you to Axiom Space. So I worked for CSF for about three years, and um, when I left, I, as they say, hung up a shingle. So I, I started doing the same kind of work, but as a consultant, mm-hmm. really wanting to rely on my operations experience um, for commercial space companies. Turns out, the work that I had done on the Hill and other places is what people were really interested in, which I still found somewhat distasteful, but but necessary, uh, until Axiom came along. So I've known Mike Safferdini for a long time, and in 2016, he formed this company with the idea of building a commercial space station. And I thought, finally, something I can I, I know something about, right? It's not about budgets or, or you know, and how many jobs in your district. It's 
its uh, operations. And so I became a contractor for them. Um, it, the company, I think I was like number four. I would have been number four if I were an employee. So we were, we were in um, an office not far from here and we'd get together. I was still living in Washington, but commuting here pretty often. And um, it just started very, very small and really took off. And now the dream for having a commercial space station, I think, will soon become a reality. And we've expanded into these private astronaut missions where at the beginning were not contemplated and neither was the work that we're doing on the next uh, Artemis spacesuit. So it's a pretty exciting time. As we're laying the foundation here for what's to come with, with the idea of how we take those first steps to, to that future, one of those first steps that's, that's part of this is this idea of private astronaut missions. I think of it as a small step because the government is very much a part of it um, with NASA enabling this ISS to be a place to try this out. Uh, space tourism, something that's been talked about for, for a long time, and at least on the NASA side, has not been commonplace up until up until now. So I wonder, you know, you had this experience on in Expedition 14, um, and then you had the the chance to be number four at um, Axiom Space, uh, this company in its infancy trying to come up with ideas on um, how to make this work. I wonder where um, from there um, the progress was made to say, hey, let's advocate for maybe using the space station as a place to take that first step towards what we're envisioning. Well, it all starts with the with the commercial space station idea. So that's what the company was founded on. I see. And um, he and Dr. Cam Gaffari and the other co-founder got together and they, you know, sat around for a while thinking, is this thing possible to do? And, and can you make a business out of it? And they decided that they could. And so that was the objective, was to build a commercial space station. Um, we were awarded a contract by NASA in the beginning of 2020 that allowed us to attach a module to the ISS. And then from that, the idea said, well, it would be great if we could have some experience on how to manage missions with that module and then subsequent modules that we could attach to it and ultimately we plan to separate the module from the ISS when the latter is decommissioned. Mm. But it's better to, to have the experience from an operations standpoint, both in terms of your team that you develop to run the mission, as well as the interfaces with NASA, because ultimately we like NASA to be one of many customers. And so we want to give NASA confidence that we know what we're doing so that when the time comes and they're looking around for a place to go in lower Earth orbit, they're very familiar with us. So the, mm -hmm. the whole idea of private astronaut missions is to establish that operational experience and at the same time the relationship with NASA and also to build a market. Because as I said, we want um, other customers beside NASA or, or the space agencies. And so you start looking around and... Um, there are private people, you know, individuals that may want to fly. There are companies. There are uh, research institutions. There are countries that don't belong to the ISS partnership. So these are the people that we're trying to cultivate as our customers um, for these private astronaut missions, and hopefully that'll continue even after the ISS is gone. Yeah, and we'll lead into that customer base too, because you mentioned this a little earlier, right? AX1 and the evolution of the customer base as we get through some of the some of the later um, Axiom missions, Axiom space missions. Um, I wonder, uh, though, you were, you were the first private astronaut mission commander, and I think at that time were you the chief astronaut at that. I don't think we had the title. Didn't okay. Didn't have the title. So so when you when um, Axiom space was thinking about you know, what, what is needed for a private astronaut to know what is the role of the commander when you were approaching your job as commander and thinking about the foundation of, you know, what is it going to take to be a successful private crew? How did you approach some of the, the first baby steps of, of getting together this, this first cadre? Well, dirty little secret, at the beginning, we did not necessarily plan to have an Axiom commander. So hmm. it would be better for the company if we could sell all four seats instead of only three of the four seats. Fair enough. 
And as we started looking at the potential clients, um, they were not too keen on going without somebody that had, had not had experience. And NASA, turns out, felt the same way. Mm-hmm. And so we lo- when we looked around the room at Axiom about who had experience, you know, I was the guy that raised their hand. <laughs> All I had so, turned to you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so at that point, it becomes you just fall back on the training that I got at NASA. Now, obviously, there are a lot of differences in leading uh, a NASA crew and leading a private astronaut crew, but there are a lot of similarities as well. So, you know, the first thing you worry about is training um, and Luckily, NASA had put together a um, syllabus whose name escapes me right now, but it was a visiting crew member syllabus or uh, Mm. something, you know, basically tailored for private astronauts. Uh, It turns out it wasn't perfect, and that was another lesson that we learned on AX1, that there were some courses we probably didn't need, and there were probably some other things that we could have spent more time on. But the training is, you know, the, the, the biggest piece. And, of course, yeah. that has to do with ISS. You have to go through the same training at, uh, on your launch vehicle, which for us was a Crew Dragon. SpaceX took care of that quite well. Um, we did a zero-G training. We did a centrifuge. We did, um, obviously, some payload training. We visited Marshall. Um, we did a trip to Alaska under the auspices of the National Outdoor Leadership School, kind of taking a, a page from the NASA playbook where, you know, they send crews out to go suffer together and <laughs> and yes. bond. And right. uh, we did that and we did suffer and we did bond as a result. <laughs> so a lot of the, the sort of the profile of the mission training was very much like a NASA mission, but obviously the the team did not necessarily have the same level of preparatory training for it. Yeah. Yeah, you were thinking about that because we're, well, let's take a look at AX1 here for a minute and look at the complement. We have uh, uh, Larry Connor, Mark Pathy, Aton Stibbe. These are, um, it was it was a unique crew. Um, and uh, with the idea is, um, you, you know, you mentioned this in the beginning was, you know, how do you teach people who have never been to space before how space works? You, of course, were the person that had been to space. As you went through that process and got this crew together, um, what were, you know, some of the ways that, you know, ultimately you decided, okay, here's what a private astronaut needs to know. What were the, some of the observations on that first mission um, uh, that, you know, made it successful? And then also, in a sense, you mentioned lessons learned that we learned and, and are going to apply to, for the future. I think I was most of all surprised at the level of their competence um, based on their backgrounds. Now, let me say Eitan was a fighter pilot um, in the Israeli Defense Force, so he was very well steeped in in operations. Um, Larry was a champion acrobat, acrobatic pilot, uh, also had some time in uh, pretty pretty successful career as a non-professional race car driver. Mm-hmm. So a lot of this kind of adventure, um, again, operations, you know, using machines and that kind of thing. Mark was the outlier. He had no, <clears throat> none of that kind of background. Um, but he was, I think, just naturally adept at that thing. And so at that sort of thing. And so they really picked up on astronaut dumb, I would say pretty quickly. Mm. Um, I would, the, the I noticed you know, perhaps some of that is due to background, but a lot of it is due to their own drive, their initiative, their... Um, they really wanted this, yeah. And I noticed that first on our Knowles trip, was the first training that we did together. And, I mean, these guys are all extraordinarily wealthy people. Mm-hmm. They are used to having things brought to them in the manner in which they've asked for them at the time at which they asked for them, et cetera. And there is nothing like that in Knowles. I mean, it is, it's tough backcountry hiking. We went to the Talkeetna Range in Alaska. It rained, it snowed, it sleeted. It was miserable for a good week. And they didn't complain. They didn't, you know, it, it was really, hey, we're going to get through this. And um, they all showed up. And I, that was the first indication to me that we were going to be okay. Awesome. Suffering and bonding. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Very good. Um, so, um, you know, you think about this crew complement, 
not just the crew complement, but the mission, AX-1. Um, this was a mission of science. There was a mission of outreach. There was uh, some commercial aspects to it. Looking at AX-1 and how the first private astronaut mission was designed, where were those focus areas? And then, and then again, in the same sort of uh, theme here is, where were those focus areas? What was good? And what are some of the lessons learned? You know, those topics that you mentioned, except for the commercial activity stuff, looks just like a NASA mission. I mean, science and outreach, science and basically. Outreach. No, yeah. we, what we didn't have to do is maintain or operate the space station. Um, mm. So that's, that. especially in Expedition 14, that was a big chunk of what we did. I think it's less now because there's more people, you know, to do the same tasks. So each person has to do less of that per day. But But other than that, it looked very much like that. And... These guys brought their own science, which is also different from a NASA mission, where you as an astronaut are handed a payload complement and taught how to operate the experiments, whereas they got to choose their experiments. Hmm. So Larry teamed up with the um, Mayo Clinic and the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Eitan through the Ramon Foundation, and you probably know that story, but Elon Ramon was uh, tragically killed in the Columbia accident. Mm -hmm. Eitan was instrumental in helping his family set up the Ramon Foundation afterward. And then Eitan used the Ramon Foundation to go out to uh, with a nationwide call for both uh, science experiments, but also outreach opportunities. Mm -hmm. And then Mark teamed up with the Montreal Children's Hospital and the Royal Canadian Geographical Society, and also through CSA, the Canadian Space Agency, which was which interestingly adopted him as a member of their astronaut corps, which I thought was really nice. Oh, that's news to me. Very that's awesome. On, Very yeah. cool. So anyway, they brought their complement of things. Um, now, we didn't get to fly everything that they wanted to fly, but we probably flew too much. In other words, they're a paying client. You want to make them happy. They're ambitious. We can do this. And, you know, we were have a lot of... Um, ops nasa ops experience on our team and who were saying this is a little heavy you know you sure you want to try all this oh yeah yeah we got it and we probably should have been a little firmer in, in our guidance but heck we loaded up the plate and it uh, turns out we couldn't eat it all um and and we, we actually ended up eating all of it only because our mission was delayed uh, sorry our mission was extended our landing was delayed it was right. supposed to be eight days aboard and ended up being 15 days aboard. So we almost spent twice as much time as we were supposed to. So we did get it all done. But <clears throat> it was it was a, a big lesson that we learned. Yeah. Also, we probably had my timeline a little more full that it needed to be doing, you know, Axiom-specific stuff uh, as, as sort of just another crew member. And as a result, when um, Mark or Larry or Eitan had an issue... I was pretty busy, and they would have to go to the NASA crew for help, and, wow. and that probably wasn't ideal. Mm. So on AX2, Peggy Whitson, the commander's timeline was drastically reduced, so she had a lot more free time to help with them, and we're repeating that uh, on AX3. It worked well for AX2, yeah. Yes, it did. I think uh, the, the, the improvement was noted by everybody. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, leading right into that AX2, right? There was there was a couple of changes. You you didn't get to completely pull away for AX2, right? You were a uh, backup commander and um, uh, you were still along the training flow. Um, this one brought in Saudi astronauts. Um, this one uh, it, it was a, it was a different complement and you, you mentioned and, and a different a couple of adjustments from the lessons learned from private astronaut missions. We established this right up front is let's figure out how to do this and of course with that comes lessons and refining. So how did how in addition to um, you know uh, reducing the time commitments of the of the private astronaut mission commander, what other changes did we see for AX2? Well, as you mentioned, the crew complement was quite a bit different. So mm -hmm. we had, um, instead of three private, when I say private astronaut, I mean privately self-funded. Mm -hmm. We had one um, private astronaut and then two government astronauts, which were both Saudis. Mm -hmm. That was different in that um, the astronauts were not the customers. Their government was a customer. And that's an, 
it seems like a subtle nuance, but it's actually a pretty big change when it comes to things like uh, the experimentation that's done on board, hmm. um, the um, catering to the customer as a customer service organization. We want to make our customer happy, which on AX1 was pretty cut and dried. The customer was the astronaut, but here it was a little bit different. Mm-hmm. And so um, now how that impacted the mission, I would say the the Saudis who were going to be, well, the first woman and second man uh, from Saudi Arabia to fly in space, big responsibility, a lot of emphasis on outreach, um, a, a very different um, weight put on them, I would say, than the private astronauts in terms of in, in, in a little bit like a NASA astronaut, you know, you have this experiment to do and you feel a real obligation to, to do your best at it. Mm. If you're a private astronaut, something's not going well, you say, well, I gave my best shot. And, you know, it's, it's a little bit different. I'll, I will say the AX1 guys are very conscientious about trying to get everything done and doing it well. But it's just a different mindset, I think, um, hmm. when they go into it. And and other than that, you know, the timeline changes were probably the most significant thing. On the training side, we we did eliminate some things uh, from the NASA training that were not probably anything that they would ever let us touch in hmm. on orbit. Um, I have a couple of humorous examples, and then there were we spent a lot more time with what we call the ops product. So the things that we use to manage our time and space, the procedures, the timeline viewer, the stowage and um, transfer tools, that kind of thing. I would say the AX2 crew were much better prepared to use those than we were on AX1. Mm. Yeah, so we had uh, John Schaffner was the private astronaut. You had Ray and Ali from from Saudi Arabia, mm-hmm. learning and refining these things. Um, that was just one step of an improvement to making private astronauts that much better. Now let's take that and jump to AX3. AX3 is a complement of astronauts representing more nations than I think any other private astronaut mission or even um, Dragon mission than before because uh, you're representing two, you have two flags. And then, of course, every uh, every seat is, we got Italy, Turkey, and uh, as well as uh, Sweden. Interesting group of um, of professionals uh, so uh, and, and private astronauts. Take us through the um, AX3 crew. Who can we expect to see up on orbit with you? So you mentioned Italy. Walter Villade is a pilot. He was also the backup pilot on AX2, so mm-hmm. we've trained together um, a fair amount. He has uh, a lot of experience, even though he hasn't flown in space before. He did um, several years of training in Star City as a cosmonaut. So he is left seat qualified, so flight engineer, qual- about as high a qualification as you can have in the Soyuz and uh, has been involved in in space policy within the Italian Air Force for a, quite a long time. Uh, Alper Gizerauci is an interesting aviator from Turkey. He is a uh, colonel in the Turkish Air Force, but he had a broken service. So he started out his aviation career as an F-16 pilot, at some point, for personal reasons, he chose to make a transition to tankers, to KC-135 tankers. That's a very unusual move for any Air Force pilot. Uh, he did it for very noble reasons. Uh, he did that for a few years and then left the Air Force and was hired by Turkish Airlines, first as a first officer and then as a captain. Then after the coup in 2016, he was asked to come back to the Air Force which he did, and now he's flying both airplanes, F-16s and KC-135. So he has more flight hours than I do. All right. Um, he's a, a very experienced guy, and um, we, Axiom, helped Trickier select him and his backup, uh, Tuver Atasever, hmm. who is a, a very bright young man uh, who studied at the University of California in Irvine um, in optics and is, uh, I, I really hope he can fly as a crew member one day because he's a very worthy guy. 
And then the last person to join the crew was Marcus Wandt, uh, also a military aviator, this one from Sweden. He started out his life as a special ops guy in the Army and as an enlistee. Um, got out, went to finish his uh, engineering degree and master's degree, and then applied for the Swedish Air Force, where he was selected as a fighter pilot. Um, <clears throat> then he... Uh, the country's aircraft manufacturer, Saab, was thinking about making a new model of its most advanced fighter and for which they would need test pilots. So they sent him to the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, same place I went. All right. Uh, he finished at the top of his class. I did not. <laughs> so we have Alper with more hours than I do and Marcus, who's a better test pilot than I am. <laughs> And uh, now, and after that, he became the chief test pilot of Saab, worked his way up to the to be that position. So it's an amazingly qualified crew. I think um, I would hold them up to any NASA crew that I've been on favorably. And I can tell you that the experience so far training both uh, at NASA and at SpaceX has borne that out. And... Uh you know, the, you, you, you talk so highly about your crew members. Um, they're from all over the world. You know, Marcus from, from ESA. We're bringing in just so many interesting people through this avenue of, of, of private astronaut missions. Um, and I want to know, I, I want to continue this conversation about evolution. AX1, right? We talked about this a little bit. Was the was the um, the research complement? Now, you know, you talked about you you mentioned briefly for AX2, research is now coming from the governments, and I think we could see this way more for this mission as well. You have research coming representing Italy, uh, Turkey, uh, uh, Sweden. Um, is can we expect to see a lot of this for AX3? Yeah, definitely. It's a very you know, profile-wise, it looks the same. And a lot of research and outreach. And, of course, the outreach component for these nations is, is very important because part of the reason that they're interested in flying a human to space is for the inspirational factor that it gives to their young people mm -hmm. and, and ultimately builds up their workforce or technical, technically capable workforce. Um, uh, one wrinkle that I didn't mention when I was referring to Marcus is that, as you did, he is an ESA reserve astronaut, mm -hmm. or now an ESA astronaut. Um, he was selected in this last class, class um, but not as a career astronaut, as a reserve. And that was very important um, for Sweden to to have somebody that was, you know, sort of off the shelf and a, a hot spare ready to go. And <clears throat> I, I think what we're doing here is... Um, expanding access to the ISS to countries that are not members of the partnership or at least not traditional members of the partnership. And so this is sort of opening the aperture toward this idea of democratizing the experience, first with private people, then with a mix, and now with all government astronauts. And mm -hmm. there are a lot of countries out there, right? And, and we yeah. hope all of them will be clients of Axiom Station someday. And I think this is going to be a, a marquee mission in terms of the science that's conducted. Another wrinkle with, with uh, taking into account that Marcus is from ESA is that all of the payloads that he's working on come mm. from Sweden and to some degree from ESA itself. Mm. But they're being developed by ESA rather than by NASA. So the other countries have to go through us and the U.S. National Lab Um which ends up being a flow restrictor in a way because of the short time between when we were named as a crew. Well, I shouldn't say we were named. We were started training as a crew at the end of April, and our launch was going to be in November. That was a pretty short runway, and we wouldn't have been able to fly a very big complement if we had to get all that through the payload integration process in NASA. And lucky, luckily, with uh, with Marcus, a third of those payloads are going through ESA, which is going in parallel and doesn't slow us down so much. Mm. I feel like this is. Um, I feel like th this is sort of. Uh, alluding to perhaps the changes that we will continue to see in the future, right? You, you're referring to Axiom Station, private private station. 
each customer is going to have very interesting needs that might take us a little bit by surprise. So, you know, we have one way of doing this, but maybe we have another country that wants to do things a little bit differently. And it just has, it starts that conversation of just, okay, well, this, it's a little bit different from what we've traditionally done in the past. We're bringing on new people that might need new ways of doing this. And so in a way, it kind of helps us to just take that next step towards maybe maybe the inevitable. I don't know if I'm jumping too far, but it, I feel like that might it might be happening anyway. Just the little roadblocks and perhaps inefficiencies that we just need to work out to just make efficient for the future. Well, I think if we're doing our jobs, we will be discovering things, and and, sure. and that means that we'll be learning things and having to make adjustments along the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're very keen on trying to make the Axiom station be as plug-and-play as possible for the reasons you suggest, and also as modular as possible so we could add to it um, relatively easily. If uh, we, we really think that there is a great potential for, for in-space manufacturing and so if a country were to come to us or, or a company or an agency and say, we want to uh, work on how to make this thing in space, we probably don't have that hardware on board yet because nobody else has done it. Um, so we want to be, be able to develop the hardware. And if it's small enough, we can put it in one of the existing modules, or you can make a module dedicated to do just that, mm-hmm. that only that particular task. And so that's really important, as you say, to have the expansion capability mm-hmm. and, and have as little kind of built-in obsolescence as possible. Yeah. And we've learned a lot. The ISS is an amazing machine, but it's pretty old, and it's been designed, I mean, a long time ago. Mm-hmm. So do we really need 1553 bus architecture? Probably not. Ethernet is pretty safe and pretty reliable now. Mm. Uh, all of the giant components that are on the external truss of the ISS, thanks to miniaturization, we can put a lot of that stuff on the inside of the Axiom station. So if a box fails, you don't have to start an EVA as much as I like to do EVA <laughs> to go replace it. You open a cabinet and you swap it out. Yeah, and my, yeah, those efficiencies are going to evolve over time with technology too. Um, going back on your comment on access to space as well. I got to experience this a little bit with um, working um, on private astronaut missions from the NASA side, and it's it's hard to appreciate um, here in the states as much. Uh, but I, I got to have more of an observation of just the impact, like for example, Aton uh, workings, uh, and then and then bringing that back to to Israel and inspiring kids around the country. Um, now seeing Saudi Arabia and uh, just the the status that those um, astronauts have in that country. Um, the inspiration factor, I think, is a little bit more unique. I think maybe in the States, we're just used to it. We just have so many different astronauts. But the newness of it, I think, is is an interesting thing and, and maybe something that's not as valued or talked about for um, for astronauts from other countries. It's just the impact that an individual or hu- the human in human spaceflight can have on on a society. I think you unfortunately hit the nail on the head that we're just, you know, due to our success, we're kind of uh, used to it and, and inured to it, unfortunately. But in the in a lot of these countries, I mean, Alper will be the first human from Turkey to go to the space. He is mm-hmm. Yuri Gagarin. He's John Glenn. Mm-hmm. He's, I mean, and he's completely unprepared for it, I can tell you, <laughs> in, in the most charming way. Yeah. Uh, but he will be a, a, a larger-than-life figure over there. And the amount, and I did an event with Aton uh, not too long after our mission, <clears throat> and the, the amount of wildly screaming, crazy, excited kids that just see him and light up, it's just, it's spectacular. Yeah. I mean, we devote those, that kind of attention to, you know, rock stars and, and, um, artists um but in in these countries astronauts still hold that kind of sway you um in in a, in a way have been spending years of your life working on a future the a future of commercial human spaceflight 
Um, and I think we're all seeing it shift with these steps like private astronaut missions, working hard on commercial destinations. It's all part of, of NASA's vision as well is, is a robust commercial low Earth orbit economy. And it's got to start somewhere, private astronaut missions being one of them. I'm curious to hear your perspective because you've been so close to it for so many years is you st from those early conversations to now, how do you feel about the progress of commercialization, uh, human space flight in low earth orbit and your thoughts about where we're going in order to achieve what we're trying to achieve? Well, I often use this analogy about how, you know, governments open new frontiers and then once you've got a, a way to get there and it's safe, then it's time for governments to move out of the way and let commerce come in and do something there, make a marketplace out of it. And that's happened over and over again in history. And that's what's happening in low, low, low Earth orbit. And I think that's appropriate. NASA and the other agencies are going to go back to the moon and one day on the Mars. Um, they want to continue to have a footprint in low Earth orbit, but they don't need to own the infrastructure there. They can buy it as a service, just like they're doing with commercial cargo and commercial crew to the ISS today. So this is the future, the immediate future, I think, of commercial human spaceflight in orbit. Um, I have seen, as you point out, NASA has been fairly bold in its steps that it's taking toward the commercialization. Definitely not as bold as some would like, <laughs> but when you consider the size of the organization, you know, I liken it to the to a giant aircraft carrier that it takes time to change course. Mm -hmm. And I've seen the course change, you know, a few degrees um, over time. And at some point, it'll start changing faster and faster. And I think that is a function of just how close the retirement of the ISS is, whether for mechanical or political reasons. But one of those two things is going to limit the life of the ISS. And they will recognize the fact that we, the, we NASA, still wants to have a place to send its astronauts to continue the, micro, continue the microgravity research. Not, not only that, but also to have a, a training ground. Mm -hmm. I mean, do you want an astronaut's first mission to be uh, landing on Mars? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and as that imperative approaches, facilitating that transition becomes more important. And the ISS program in particular, I think, has been very forward-leaning in, um, in understanding that connection and, and, and facilitating that transition. But, you know, we still have a long way to go, but, you know, we're on PAM 3 and um, there'll be probably many more before the ISS is retired. Yeah. Um, taking it on home, focusing on AX3 and this upcoming mission, you've got experience on shuttle, you've got experience on long-duration um, station missions, and you have a private astronaut mission under your belt. Um, particularly, I guess, from the difference from AX1 to AX3, how are you going to approach this mission a little bit differently as commander, as your role with the astronauts now that you've known and gotten to know them over time with training? What's your approach going to be like? Well, I think because of the changes that we've made since uh, AX1 and, and implemented on AX2, I will be focused much more on helping the rest of the crew get through what they have to get through. Mm. And... Um, you know, I, I think I was guilty of a little bit of the Expedition 14 commander mentality when I knew that my crewmates knew exactly what to do, and I worried a little bit about getting my own work done, mm. uh, perhaps on AX-1 to the detriment of them getting their work done, or at least getting their work done independently, you know, without relying so much on the NASA crew's crew. Um, I think this time will be different. I, I think we also have the advantage that this crew um, will have been slightly better trained because of the changes that we've made in the training program, especially at NASA, and that that will lead them to being more successful autonomously. You know, ironically, it's all going to happen at once. But, you know, if we if we're successful, if all of these things come together as I think they will, uh, we will be wildly successful in executing everything we're trying to do. Excellent. Um, t 
to to the next private astronaut missions that come to the folks that are trying to push the boundaries and and make sure that we're continuing this progress <clears throat> and you're given your experience with with working so much with um, commercial entities and and building the building the and setting the groundwork for where we are today with ax3 what advice do you have for you know that next set of astronauts that's going to come that's going to have to represent their country those next folks that are going to be working on the next private astronaut missions and moving forward what pieces of advice do you have for i would say my advice isn't so much for the crew members uh, some of them will be customers and some of them will be proxies of the customers will be their governments yeah but rather for the customers themselves which is come on down <laughs> i think we are really honing in on the right solution on on how to manage these projects now uh both from a customer experience standpoint to working with our partners be they nasa or spacex or others and the the time is right. I mean, this is sort of the beginning of the snowball starting to roll down the hill. Uh, I think we, as we gather steam, it's going to become um, exponentially more and more popular, which is good for everybody. I mean, this is going to help facilitate this idea of expanding access, which is really the fundamental root of what we're trying to do with these PAM missions and then later with the Axiom Station. Mm hmm Wonderful. Absolutely fascinating conversation. Mike Lopez Alegria, thank you so much for coming on Houston Pimbo Podcast, sharing this perspective and your journey that led you to AX3. Godspeed. Thank you, Gary. Hey, thanks for sticking around. Hope you learned something today. It was an absolute pleasure to be speaking with Mike L.A. today. Lots to learn and lots to do, really, for commercial space flight. You can always check out the latest on nasa.gov, and you can check out any of our podcasts. We've talked about the International Space Station and a lot that's going on there uh, on our podcast, available at nasa.gov slash podcast. While you're there, you can check out the many other shows we have across the agency. On social media, we're on the NASA Johnson Space Center pages of Facebook, X, and Instagram. You can use the hashtag AskNASA on your favorite platform to submit an idea for the show. Maybe ask a question. Uh, just make sure to mention is for us at Houston. We have a podcast. This episode was recorded on October 31st, 2023. Thanks to Will Flato, Dane Turner, Abby Graff, Jane Jennings, Dominique Crespo, Alexis DeJarnet, and Meredith Moore. And of course, thanks again to Michael Lopez Alegrio for taking the time for coming on the show. Give us a rating and feedback on whatever platform you're listening to us on and tell us what you think of our podcast. We'll be back next week.